before coming on retreat. <clears throat> Perhaps some of us, while at home, were looking forward to being here. Perhaps with excitement or anticipation or anxiety. Especially if you were new. Curiosity. Even fear. Some of you who have done a fair number of retreats perhaps couldn't wait. And now at this point in the retreat, now that we're here, we're probably thinking about going home. (laughs) How it is back home where we can eat what we want and have all the conditions that are suitable for us. Then when we get home, where will we go after that? (laughs) (laughs) There were some uh, good examples came up uh, in the interviews, a few of them, and I'd like to add a few of my own before we, we really, we actually will get to what the Buddha had to say tonight. Uh, one person brought up is this um, intimacy that we're talking about where the um, subject-object dichotomy dissolves. Where there's uh, no separation from our experience, usually by thoughts or images. Uh, gave the example of music. That is, if you're a musician and fully in the playing of what you're playing so that you can't, there's no separation between the instrument and you. That would be an example, yes. Or swimming. If you're someone who loves to swim and if you are conscious as you swim, where is the difference between the water and you? And those are moments that we all no, we know in small ways, sometimes dancing when you disappear into the music or with your partner into the music. And all it takes is one thought which acknowledges how wonderful it is to fuse with what you're doing and then it's over. <laughs> Separation again. <laughs> It's back to me who's swimming, me who's playing the saxophone, me who's dancing. Um, in our sitting practice, one image that the ancients use, which is, a, I think, a very helpful one, uh, at the beginning of practice, our relationship to the sitting, literally the, the f- sitting with our body in the formal fixed sitting practice that we have mostly in this hall, it's uh, said that it's like a rider on a horse. And at first, the rider feels very different uh, than the horse. Clearly two separate things. And then with time, what happens is the, the rider and the horse disappear into each other. There's no rider or horse. It's just one thing that's happening. In our practice... Some of you know the sutra on full awareness of breathing. The whole first four contemplations culminate. One aspect of their, of knowing that it's happening is when the mind, the breath, and the body become unified, become one. 
Perhaps some of you have felt it already. You're sitting and um, sometimes the way it feels is as if you're being breathed, but there's no one who's doing the breathing. That is, if you check, you can see that breathing is happening, but for the life of you, you can't find the breather. Although if you try too hard, then that which is trying is the breather, and then you're out in the cold again, separate from your experience separated by ourselves, by the play of mind. An example uh, from a psychiatric text from quite a while ago, from the 60s or 70s, R.D. Lang, this will date the generations here, uh, who was a very um, highly acclaimed psychiatrist at the time. And he had one case where uh, it was a problem between a husband and a wife. Uh, Whenever the husband made love, the only way he could make love was by having an image of another woman. Otherwise, uh, the sexual act couldn't be culminated. He would have a problem that way. And so the therapy had to do with uh, helping this person dissolve that um, image of a different person not, not his wife, who he would imagine, and that would enable him uh, to be aroused and make love. Otherwise, he couldn't. I don't know if the Buddha would hear what he would think of that, but it gets even... <laughs> <laughs> but it gets even more refined in, uh, in this, because if this husband was making love, or any partner, you know, any two partners was making love and had an image of his wife while he was making love. That would be separation. You see how subtle it gets? Because it's an image between the person, between the two people. If both of them are doing it, then there are four people making love. In general, uh, I told you to be a little disappointed when we use the term intimacy. Perhaps some of you thought it would just be four nights of talking about relationship. And as you can see, it isn't. But then again, it is. Because I think everything that's been said, all the examples, apply to anything that you do. That, to me, is the power of that way of looking at it. As we see, are we separate from life as we live our life out, or is there no separation? And that keeps changing from moment to moment. The practice is an intentional, systematic re-education, training, to enable us to more and more be fully alive, which is another way of putting it. Um, In general, in relationship, uh, if you have an image of yourself, and of the other person, and of course it goes the other way, then that, from this point of view, is a barrier to intimacy. I I don't mean just sexual, just in everyday life. And this is with anyone. And so some of the practice is to begin to see how we form images of the people in our life and that these images come from the past. They're the, the experiences that we've had, the flattery, the wounds, whatever has happened to us. And without 
really understanding it. We think we're relating to another person, but we're relating to some notion that we have. Sometimes when people have been together for a long time, there's a certain comfort and familiarity, but there's also sometimes a deadness. And the practice is to help uh, rejuvenate life so that uh, each moment is literally, this is not sort of a corny, romantic or mystical kind of thing. So each moment is fresh. And the main way we we do that, or one of the main ways, is by seeing how we're separate. Because if you try to be at one, if you try to unify yourself with what you're doing, what you're unifying yourself with is often seems to be the, an idea of being together. Whereas if you can just notice separation, uh, as the separation weakens and even falls away, then quite naturally there's that closeness. Let's hear what the Buddha had to say. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya 131, for those of you who Uh, know uh, the Buddha's uh, teachings. I should give you a little bit of background on this. Uh, there's a fair amount scattered throughout the, uh, the sermons of the Buddha on uh, solitude, on uh, different uh, people who are practiced in solitude. One in particular who was praised and who, the, who all the monks were very Uh, who admired, and another who practiced in solitude, but people felt something was off about him and arranged a meeting with the Buddha, and that leads up to this. That monk would say often, as I live my life, there's nobody in front of me, there's nobody in back of me, there's nobody alongside of me. I eat alone, I meditate alone, I sleep alone, I do walking meditation alone. And sounds okay, I mean, for periods of intensive meditation, certainly, except uh, his fellow monks felt something was off. And so they arranged a meeting with the Buddha, and the Buddha was actually quite gentle with him, not putting him down, but in a sense showing him uh, a more refined giving him a more refined understanding of what solitude is. I'm going to read the sutta. It's not very long. Um, And please listen carefully. Uh, You can, can go to your breathing. It's a few minutes. The Sutra on the Love of Ideal Solitude. The Bade Karata Sutta. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jetta Grove in the town of Sravasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them. Bhikkhus, which for those of you who knew means monks. And the bhikkhus replied, We are here. The Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by the love of ideal solitude knowing the better way to live alone. I will begin with an outline of the teaching and then I will give a detailed explanation. Bhikkhus, please listen carefully. 
We're the bhikkhus tonight. And bhikkhunis, excuse me. Blessed one, we are listening. The Buddha taught. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day the one who knows ideal solitude. Bhikkhus, what do we mean by pursuing the past? When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past, when he thinks about these things and his mind is burdened by and attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is pursuing the past. Because what is meant by not pursuing the past? When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past. When he thinks about these things, but his mind is neither enslaved by nor attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is not pursuing the past. So that's how the Buddha is using that phrase. Because what is meant by losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental factors will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future. When he thinks about these things and his mind is burdened by and daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then that person is losing himself in the future. Because what is meant by not losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental factors will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future. When he thinks about these things, but his mind is not burdened by or daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then he is not losing himself in the future. Bhikkhus, what is meant by being swept away by the present? When someone does not study or learn anything about the awakened one or the teachings of love and understanding or the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows nothing about the noble teachers and their teachings and does not practice these teachings and thinks, quote, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself. I am these feelings. This perception is myself. I am this perception. This mental factor is myself. I am this mental factor. This consciousness is myself. I am this consciousness. 
then that person is being swept away by the present. Because what is meant by not being swept away by the present? When someone studies and learns about the awakened one, the teachings of love and understanding, and the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows about noble teachers and their teachings, practices these teachings and does not think, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself, I am these feelings, this perception is myself, I am this perception, this mental factor is myself, I am this mental factor, this consciousness is myself, I am this consciousness, then that person is not being swept away by the present. Because I have presented the outline and the detailed explanation of knowing the ideal way to solitude, the better way to live alone. Thus the Buddha taught, and the bhikkhus were delighted to put his teachings into practice. I think much of it is self-evident, it's very clear, but let me um, elaborate a little bit. Some people um, in interviews were a little confused. Does this mean that we can never plan in regard to the future? Does this mean that we can't reminisce? reminisce? We can't draw upon the past? I once had someone, not here, who uh, did a, um, was more of a, a 10-week practice group, an introduction to this. And he seemed to love it and really practiced very hard and at the end of it was kind of saddened. So I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, I've enjoyed this uh, practice very much, but uh, what happens now? You see, I'm a city planner. That's my job. <laughs> Does that mean he has to go on unemployment because of the Bu- <laughs> and it's the Buddha's fault? Um, what he's talking about, uh, of course not. Uh, there's no suffering in planning, per se. And then um, the past. Uh, does that mean we can never talk to our parents about our childhood? They can never remind us of how cute we were when we were small and all the rest of it? Uh, that we can never, if we even think of the past, somehow... Uh, Someone should wrap our knuckles and tell us to stop that. Again, it's, a, uh, it's the attachment to the past in such a way as we get lost. Um, I think the heart of it is something like this. If you're standing firmly in the present, actually that's all there is. Can you tell me some other place that you can be? If, but if you're squarely in the present, solidly, and I don't mean just your body, then from that position of being stable in the present, you can enter into all kinds of futuristic things that are necessary. We all had a plan to come here. There's a lot of planning that goes into each day for us, for all of us. The past can be very helpful. We can learn from the past. The whole subject of history is uh, extremely useful and so forth. 
if you're situated in the present and you understand that you're in the present reflecting on something that's over, you're in the present imagining a possible outcome in the future or envisioning it or planning it, but you're not lost in what you're doing because really there's only one place to be. You can only be in the present. The past is over. The future is not here yet. So what is happening is we have memories, but they're happening in the present moment. We envision a future, but that is happening in the present moment too. So I hope that makes it clear you know, for us. Um, In a different teaching of the Buddha, someone um, commented to the Buddha or a bunch of, uh, of his monks were practicing. And this person came over to the Buddha and said, your monks are so peaceful and radiant. They seem so uh, at peace with themselves and happy. Uh, what's the secret? And the Buddha said, they don't hanker after the future. They don't try to revive the past and they sustain themselves in the present. I'd like to uh, emphasize that point right now. They don't sustain, they sustain themselves on the present. That's what we've been talking about all along. All the nourishment that you could ever want is right here in the present. When we've been talking about uh, a few evenings ago, Uh, let's say, of becoming intimate with your loneliness, that is communing with it, where there's no barrier, there is not you who are lonely, but awareness fully penetrates into the loneliness. And that sometimes what comes out of that is a, a beautiful thing, a transformation of sorts. And even an awakening can come. Awakenings happen in actual moments. So what's going on is that the person in that moment is sustaining themselves uh, on the materials of the present. Whether those materials are pleasant, happy, wonderful or not, there's still nourishment in them if we relate to them directly. If our mindfulness enters directly into what's happening. Actually, in Vipassana, to be more precise, it's not just mindfulness alone. It's mindfulness with discernment. Mindfulness alone has certain limitations. Mindfulness needs discernment. That is, there's attentiveness to what's happening and in the process of looking carefully, there's uh, a sense of what that's about. The significance of what you're seeing reveals itself to you. Sometimes when we use the term mindfulness, it's really covering that. Because what it means is that Uh, We place attention on what's happening and as the seeing gets deeper, it really is discernment. But but we use two two different terms, sati and panya, sati-panya. So, so much of what's been said so far has to do with that, nourishing ourselves in the present. Um, This... um, my body is not me, etc. You remember not getting caught in the present moment, what, the, what was just mentioned by the Buddha. Again, do you recall when we discussed what can happen uh, when you're able to make direct 
contact with the rawness of loneliness or anything else. Remember that we said that sometimes there is this, a beautiful thing can happen. There's a, the energy changes and it can change quite dramatically. And remember what was mentioned was that the reason this can happen is there's something missing. Something is not there, which kind of mucks things up all the time. Me. My loneliness. Once you have my loneliness, forget about it. Big trouble. Or me or mine, anything. So, uh, it's not that you try to banish that. It's that when you're really attentive, the momentum of this machine that's constantly making images and notions about itself goes into abeyance. And there's clarity. I'm sure you've, you've tasted it on this retreat already. When we're uh, concentrated and attentive, uh, then there isn't this attachment and identification with what's happening as if it's me. And then all you have to do is lose your awareness. It takes a split second and uh, the images start pouring in and the sense of me and mine, they, are, they get reborn immediately. Uh, what the, there are other implications to this uh, a sermon of the Buddha. When we think of th- solitude, I think most of us, and just a common sense use of that term, we think of somebody being alone, let's say in a forest or the mountains or somewhere. You could do it in your own apartment. Often we think of it as being special people who do that, hermits or monks or nuns or yogis. Or, uh, it's not something that us ordinary folks do. But from this more refined point of view, for example, the monk originally was saying, there's nobody in front of me, meaning no bodies. He's, he's alone all day. There's no one in front of him, behind him, or alongside of him. So from that point of view, solitude is being used to mean if there are no persons in the area that, you're, that you are in, then you're in solitude. But then the Buddha corrects that and says uh, there's an added refinement. Because, for example, you could be in a situation where there are no other bodies around and it can be quite busy, like Times Square on New Year's Eve. <laughs> and what the Buddha is cataloging are all the many ways in which the mind in other words, there are a lot of beings living, living with us. We're not alone. It's not really solitude. So the real having no one in front of us, alongside of us, or in back of us, really means no attachment to the, to the future, the imaginings of the future. No attachment to what's over. Uh, not putting so much energy into reviving the past and then, and then getting stuck there. No attachment to making the present into the notion of me or mine to solidify that sense. Which means, and this is, has, I think, tremendous significance for lay people, which is us, most of us, that means that the real solitude, um, of course, it can be extraordinarily helpful to go off by yourself. I personally have done a lot of retreats that way. I like to practice alone and have done a lot of it and found it invaluable. Uh, but you can be alone you're, uh, with no other human beings around and the mind can be so uh, feverish and busy uh, that it is in solitude in the sense in which the Buddha meant it. 
Now, the implication is that you can be in a state of solitude right in the middle of ordinary life. And I want to really clarify that because that can be misunderstood. In the kind of solitude that the Buddha is talking about, if you are really so present, because that's another word for it, when I said you could be in a state of solitude in the midst of your life, did any of you feel a little bit uneasy? A little bit awkward or like, what does he mean by that? Does that mean I'm distant? You know, here are just normal family life, work life, life as a student. If I'm in solitude in the middle of all that, am I cut off from everyone? I don't know if you had that thought, but people sometimes, because the conditioning is so strong with the word solitude. But what the Buddha is saying is if you're in true solitude, then you're really intimate. You're open to whatever is in your presence because you are present. So everything, it's not that you work to be intimate. Is it when that facade drops, when that wall drops, then you are intimate. Whatever is, in, is there is immediately experienced without the protection or the barrier or the filter of who it is you think you are or you should be or you used to be. I used to be a lonely person, but now I've come to IMS and I'm going to do this practice and soon I won't be a lonely person. So it's a, a very liberating message uh, in that it uh, is pointing to the possibilities. To me, what he's talking about is intimacy. Intimacy with yourself. I have to use language that doesn't make sense, finally. But what falls away are all the ways in which we make objects out of ourselves through images, through thinking, and then we're really there. Let me give you another example that comes out of uh, my own experience. A friend I have, someone I knew when I was in, in, uh, living at uh, Wat Pa Ban Thad in Thailand. He had been a, uh, was a monk when I met him and he had been a monk for about 12 years. Um, Canadian, a bhikkhu. And we became very friendly. And one of the things he told me about I thought was fascinating. He said for the first he described himself rather objectively. He had, was quite sophisticated. It had a lot of psychotherapy and so forth. And he said for the first four years that he was a monk, and he, this is a forest monastery, so that even it, it wouldn't fit your notion of a monastery if you went there because everyone's in a hut, a meditation hut, separate from everyone else, and there are pathways connecting, and a big hall that everyone comes together to eat and to meditate and to chant from time to time. And also, they go out into the forest by themselves a lot with no one else or a couple of monks. But what he described, he said, for the better part of four years, he was obsessed, where even when he was alone in the forest, with images and notions, I'm a monk. He couldn't get rid of it. He told me that he considered himself a very narcissistic person. He was when he was a lay person. Uh, tremendously preoccupied with his mode of dress and how he looked. and uh, His mother used to criticize him. He spent so much time in front of the mirror and so forth. And he said when he became a monk, he had all these images of himself until finally, uh, little by little, he was able to lay that to rest. Now, who's, who's more free? If somebody has the robes on, if their head is shaved, if they're outwardly conforming to the Vinaya, uh, 
a perfect monk in terms of outer behavior, in terms of demeanor, in terms of uh, carriage and so forth. Or somebody who has uh, high heels, lots of makeup, or somebody with a three-piece suit, business suit and an attache case, but who's clear, if their mind is clear. They don't have all these ideas about who I used to be, who I am, who I will be. Now, I don't know if there are such people. <laughs> but I would say that's our challenge. If, uh, if lay practice is to become something genuine uh, and not a kind of a sad uh, image of uh, what the practice is supposed to be, I think we have to learn how to be free in all those situations. And here, freedom is... Uh, it, you're not necessarily free because the situation is defined as free people. You can be free in a prison. You can be imprisoned free. You know, out free, roaming freely. It's a very subtle kind of freedom that we're talking about. fair amount more to say on two kinds of practices. I don't think there'll be time tonight and maybe there won't be time during this retreat. Uh, It's okay. You can have a rich and full life without one more talk on intimacy. Um, But let me suggest something to you. What I've been talking about has been direct perception. Uh, learning how to be fully and intimately in contact with our raw experience, our naked experience in the moment, just the way it is, not the ideas about it. But when there are ideas about it, to be aware of that. That's also just as good practice. There's another, a couple of other kinds of practices that can help us um, wake up to the present moment, to help us appreciate the value of the present moment so that we're much more able and motivated, keenly interested in living that way. One kind of practice I hinted at last night about reflections on interbeing or the way everything is interrelated. With this practice, you begin to see, you don't take things for for granted. You begin to see that for your happiness, you start to see how much uh, is necessary to be a happy person. Just think of this retreat center. Um, Hopefully, Narayan, Michael, and myself have done a reasonably good job, and you've done a reasonably good job. But think of the support system that that, uh, comes in here. And you know where it starts? It starts with, this was once a mansion. People who worked really hard building it. And then not only was it a mansion, then it became a a Catholic seminary and then uh, became what it is now. Uh, And now there are all kinds of repairs have gone on. There are uh, staff doing untold things behind our back. We don't see it. Uh, So that um, this place is fit to have a practice. There's so many conditions that have to come together for this retreat to happen. You've had to have adequate health 
You've had to have adequate money. You've had to have, be able to have someone take care of your children, someone cover for you on the job, uh, have enough money for transportation. To pay. It's, if you think about it, if there weren't heat here, remember, toilet paper, uh, silverware, dishes, uh, so many things, uh, water, air, it's endless. Normally, we just pick certain things out, we feature them, and we talk about them. Uh, the, the attitude of, of Dharma is that uh, we develop a kind of uh, infinite respect, which means everything is worthy of respect, even your loneliness, even your anguish, even your anger, even our fear. In some of the monasteries, this is practiced and the first time I saw it was in Japan. Uh, and I wasn't too briefed as to what was going to happen. And I saw monks and nuns, uh, I saw one monk bow to the toilet. Uh, people at the end of a sitting bow to each other. Uh, people, I saw people bow to their cushion. Some of you already know this. And what, they, what it is is a show of gratitude. Uh, what, they, what they're saying is, I understand that all these things uh, are helping me to practice and to get free. If the cushion weren't there, or you know, your chair or your bench, uh, supposing that you didn't have it, it would be much more uncomfortable. And a very important one, when, we, when they bow to each other, it's a different seating arrangement. Uh, we bow this way. You might think I'm bowing to the Buddha, but I'm not, or I am, because the Buddha is you too and me. But what they're trying to do, was this is a, a, the first place I saw it dramatically, so much bowing and so much respect to small detail. What they're saying is, thank you for being here, for practicing here, because you're here, I can practice. Maybe I've gotten discouraged and tired and I look up and I peek and I see you're still sitting. Okay, I'm not going to pack my bags, I'll stick around a little longer. <laughs> Uh, and if, if, if some people are calm and are tasting some joy in the practice and other people are upset and restless and discouraged, uh, whether you know it or not, the calm ones are bringing us restless ones along. They're helping us and then it changes and we're calm. And if all of us honor the silence and so forth. So uh, that's another meaning of sangha. If, if something goes wrong, if people say the wrong things or, be, or behave incorrectly, we forgive them. We don't give up on anyone, ever. Uh, at this particular monastery, uh, the monks would take water from the well and they would always spill a little bit back in gratitude. And it can become just a way of life. What we tend to do, and I don't mean just in America, it's everywhere. We feature certain things that are worthwhile. For example, I might go a little bit over. Um, I don't think you'd be, you, you won't have the ecstasy of doing so much walking tonight. Would that be all right? You forgive me? Yeah. You're applauding? Okay. Good, then I won't feel guilty. In this same monastery, they used as a guidebook uh, a, uh, a sermon given by a very great Japanese Zen master named Dogen. And it was a guide to the cook. 
but in it was a really complete instructions to enlightenment. In one sense, it's talking about cooking in, with great reverence and respect. And it says such, such things, since I have a few minutes more, I think I can be a little bit more long-winded, <laughs> which as you can see is not difficult for me. Um, Dogen learned this uh, when he was on a ship coming from Japan to China. And the ship docked in Japan and he met a, uh, an old monk and they hit it off. They really had one full Dharma discussion together and then the old monk said, sorry, I've got to go. I've got to get back to my monastery. It's getting to be close to uh, the time that I'm needed there. He was the head cook. And Dogen said, well, why don't you just spend the night on, on board uh, because we're having such a good time talking. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, uh, and in effect, the old monk said, you know, you young whippersnapper, you, don't, you really don't understand the Dharma, do you? Uh, you think that being a cook isn't as important as sitting in meditation. Uh, not anyone is allowed to do the cooking. Uh, I've been practicing for many years, and so I have the honor of being able to serve the Sangha, being able to care for their nourish- nourishment, and to make sure that people are healthy and have enough energy to practice. Uh, it is not inferior to what happens in the meditation hall. And so he went back. And then in this sermon, of course, Dogen learned his lesson and so much so that he has this uh, magnificent uh, commentary on the instructions for the cook. He writes his own. And in it are suggestions like this. Uh, It's something like, it's very easy to uh, put together an extraordinary meal uh, with a lot of care and attention when you have wonderful ingredients and the emperor is coming for a visit or a lot of high monks are coming to visit. And you put in a lot of care and attention and uh, produce this magnificent meal. But what happens the next day when all you have are these uh, leftovers and a bunch of scraggly monks to cook for? <laughs> then do you get sloppy and just throw something together? Uh, he talks about Um, caring for the food with the same quality of attention that you care for your eyes. And he goes on. Essentially what he's trying to say is that uh, there isn't anything that everything is worthy of respect. Everything, the practice is learning that respect for whatever you do. Because whatever you're doing, whatever you encounter, that's your life in that moment in addition to, let's say, the function of cooking, which is useful for others, if you're separated from what you're doing, if you're all caught up, if you're caught in the past, caught in the future, preoccupied with yourself in that moment, you've killed life. Remember, heat kills, cold kills, but also cooking can kill if you're lost while you're cooking. So it's a very refined sense of what it means to be alive. It means that in the, whatever it is, cleaning a toilet, and I was delighted to hear that there are a couple of professors here who are cleaning toilets. The only problem is when I said that in interviews, they said they loved it. And I was hoping they were having a hard time. <laughs> so we have to get them a different job. <laughs> Ideally, we should find out what we all hate and that's the job we take. 
Or you know how we speak sometimes, uh, we have special times for our children, special times for our paying the bills, and then, and then finally, whew, finally I have some time for myself. Well, with this attitude, you, you always have time for yourself. Of course, you always did. But that's always your life. Whatever we encounter is our life. So that if you have the other attitude, it's what the ancients called killing life. It's actually a subtle violation of a precept. When you're wholeheartedly doing what you're doing, it's called giving life to life. And that's another way of talking, this infinite respect, intimacy. They're just words, but I hope the spirit is being conveyed. Um, However you develop that, and in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there are some brilliant uh, ways to kind of open the mind up to how how we all need each other, how everything is interdependent. Everything. There's one one teaching, uh, magnificent, not so easy to get through without help, called the Avatamsaka Sutra. And in it, and it's a subtitle sometimes, is Entering into the Inconceivable, which is where this all heads. We're entering into something that can't be conceived of. And it says, if one mote of dust were removed from the universe, the entire universe would crumble and just fall apart. Probably many of you know, in our time, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has done some very wonderful and accessible uh, writings on this theme of how we all are in this together. So you would do well to read that. Now, once you get into the spirit of it, can you see how that change in attitude uh, can facilitate and make it easier to live in the present moment because you start to cherish the present moment. Now we'll go to the other, which I uh, won't have time to go into too much detail, but I think this will be obvious to you. Um, one of the kinds of meditation that exists um, in Buddhist circles is something called marana sati, uh, death awareness, the contemplation of death our own death. Uh, it hasn't been uh, used too much in the West and I think that's starting to change. We all mention it every time we talk about impermanence or it's scouted through so many Dharma talks. Birth, sickness, old age and death. But there actually are systematic meditations to intensify and to make more real the understanding that each and every one of us will die. And you do this now while you're alive, while you're young, while you're whatever age. Uh, For us in the West, that might seem strange, maybe not for those of you here. But for example, in one film, Woody Allen, I've forgotten the movie that some of you will know, Woody Allen says, um, it's not that I'm afraid to die, It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Our practice is, I think, the reverse. We openly acknowledge we're terrified of dying and we want to fully be there when it happens. It's very different. Well, how are you going to do that? Uh, If you are the way you are now, probably you're better off with Woody Allen's attitude. These meditations are designed... uh, to do a number of things. There really are quite a few, but uh, 
and they've helped me immensely. I think very highly of them. They're not more. They're not morbid. They're not meant to be done by everyone all the time. There is there's a right time and place to do it. If you're going through a period in your life where there's a lot of sadness and depression, or your likes and dislikes are very strong, it may not be the best time to do it. But sometimes it is. It's very very useful. And what it leads to when it's done correctly is a real lightness. But here are a couple of outcomes, and then I'll give you a hint as, as some ways in which it can be done. One outcome is that it flushes out the fear that we have of death. Of course, you can use the practice any time that arises just naturally in life. It could happen when you see something on the news. Perhaps you see some uh, event in the news with, of uh, of death and that you suddenly feel that in yourself. Uh, but here they're intentional. These contemplations uh, are designed to really arouse this sense that you will die. Each and every one of us will die. When the fear arises, then there are ways of working with the fear. Some of it not unlike what we've been doing here when it, uh, with anything that comes up. So that one way in which the meditation works is that it does arouse fear. And then you bring your mindfulness, your sati and panya, your mindfulness and your insight to it, your discernment to it, uh, and you examine the fear of death. As you get better at doing that, you see, uh, finally you see that what you're afraid of really isn't even death. It's your idea of what death is. And it gets very, very subtle because when you do it at first, you feel like you're doing it, but then uh, you realize that what you're doing is still, in ways that are not so obvious sometimes, you project into the future someone who's you, who's going to die in that future. And that can be valuable, and it can be poignant, and you can feel things, and then you can examine it, and it can be useful. But when the practice is done correctly, uh, the intensity of the fear of death or the sense of the obviousness of death. It's not necessarily always fear. It's just the fact that death is inevitable. There's no escape from this. You know, take this moment right now. Uh, You're looking, some of you are looking this way, you're listening, perhaps you feel your breath, you feel um, touch with your cushion or your bench, your chair. Uh, the body feels a certain way, the lighting is a certain way, you, uh, maybe your stomach is this way or that way. In short, it's very real now, isn't it? I mean, this is our moment. This is the way it is. Each one of us, it's different. Th- this moment. Can you feel your this moment? I'm with my this moment. When death happens, it's going to happen in a moment like this. You know, instead of you sitting here and looking at someone uh, going on about Dharma, you will be dying. You'll be in the process of dying and then you'll die. And these, some of these practices, especially if you have a skilled teacher to help you, uh, they help you to uh, not avoid and evade this until you understand how real it is. It becomes a really intimate experience. So one of the benefits is that uh, you actually flush out the fear for purposes of weakening it. I don't know if you can fully eliminate it doing this practice. Maybe you can. But finally, the test will always come 
when the time comes you die. I mean, uh, if, you, if you tell me, yeah, I've been doing Maranasati for 10 years, I've mastered that practice, let's move on to something else. I have no fear of death. I'll hear you. But finally, we'll have to wait around. <laughs> because it's still a dress rehearsal, maybe a very good one. So that the fear can uh, lessen of death. And here's another one, another benefit that comes from it. In these practices, and there's more than one way to do it, and I may give you just very briefly a very simple way that you can fool around with sometime, perhaps when you go home or if you like here. It's like you shine the light of death on life. Uh, it's a very wonderful practice. That is, once you start to get a sense of the truth of your own death. And the ancient uh, yogis and uh, Vipassana training, it was not unusual, it's starting to become harder and harder to do this, to spend time with actual decaying corpses and understanding that just as this body that I'm looking at is subject to old age, sickness, old age, and death, I'm not exempt from that lawfulness. This is my body that's rotting there as I look at it. And they would go back and forth, back and forth. So in a sense, you're walking hand in hand with death in this practice. You invite it in. Not only to, for fear, but because one of the outcomes from it, which is a very, very wonderful, is that as you shine the light of death on life, what happens is the things that you're doing that are a complete waste of time or silly, uh, it's so hard for them, to, they get burnt up when that light is shining on them, they become harder and harder to do. The things in your life that are truly worthwhile, they become uh, unimaginably precious. We don't have forever. And whether you want to talk about our practice here or about the people you love in your life, or you tell me, whatever it is, a sunset, when you reflect on it, when it gets through our thick skulls, that... Uh, we don't have forever. It's easier for people who are younger to play the game of delay. Yeah, I know I'm going to die, but oh, not for quite a while yet. And so, here are some of the things that come out of that. Uh, Your priorities can be put in order. If you shine the light of death on how you are living now, you may find that you're spending a huge amount of energy on things which are trivial which are not even what you really want to do. Look at it this way. Let's say in, during the, when we're dying, let's say you have, you're notified, you're dying, and it's a matter of not much time. During that time, and certainly as you die, a lot of things happen all at once. A huge number of losses. You lose your job, you lose your house, your car, your family, your friends, your rare book collection, your stamp collection, your... Uh, all your the vitamins you everything you tell me your exercise machine <laughs> your clothing will you're wonderful that took you years to assemble it'll be in some thrift shop somewhere <laughs> and people won't even want to buy it they won't like it <laughs> it's out of style it's, oh, that's grandma and grandpa's style isn't it wait a minute grandma and grandpa that's me Well, what is it uh, 
So your priorities start to come in order and it can add a, a precious quality to life which enhances what we've been talking about throughout the retreat of the present moment. Finally, one of the wonders of the present moment is its amazing efficiency. Everything can be taken care of in the present moment. In fact, everything has to be taken care of in the present moment. For example, let's say we've all been hurt in the past. We've had problems. You know, I don't have to document. We all know we have wounds from one thing or another. How are those wounds going to be healed? The events are over, but the wounds are there. The wounds are present right now when they surface, when they come up. The practice is, uh, the practice of mindfulness has the power to heal when those wounds are seen clearly in, in some of the ways that we've all been talking about for all these days. You can't go back to the past and re-educate your parents or your high school teacher or whoever it was that you know, wasn't nice to you. Uh, that's all done. That's over with. It's ancient history. But what we can do is we can experience and work with uh, the traces of it that are here in the present moment. So the past can be healed and taken care of in the present moment. The present moment can also be taken care of because if you're aware of the present moment, then you're uh, living the best way you can live. The situation that you're in is being treated with the utmost respect and the possibility of intelligent, compassionate action is maximized because you're really alive to what is actually happening. You have a much better chance of behaving properly. So your present moment uh, is being taken care of, of course, in the present, too. And as for the future, we're, we're planting the seeds right now. Everything you do now is what our future is going to be. How you're living now How we're living, how we're living now, <laughs> how we're living now, <laughs> is totally enslaved to technology. <laughs> My fantastic little two words have to be there for, I don't know, centuries of yogis to hear sometime. So we can tell a fair amount about what our future is going to be like by how we're living now because we're planting seeds. And if you're planting healthy seeds, loving seed, compassionate seeds, wise seeds, we will reap what we, what we plant. If you're not, take a good look at what, what, how you are spending your time. So that uh, it's all now. Um, so much of our life is spent chasing shadows and all there is is now. If you hear this, the teaching is so simple and efficient and it's difficult because it is so simple. It's saying, live your life now with sensitivity and learn from what you experience and what you see. Let me uh, finish this with one of the most, uh, a very lovely statement of 
in a way, it's the positive side. You remember the the rabbis and you know who who do you look who thinks he's a nobody? <laughs> uh, but there was some very deep teaching in that because what what was being implied there is that if that rabbi and the others, if they really were a nobody, then there's room for God to come in. In that perspective, that's how it's seen. If you're there, that means our big fat ego is there, there's no room for God because you're filling up, you're taking up the space. And here's Kalu Rinpoche who puts together uh, the profundity of the practice in such a simple and elegant way. It's... uh, as good as anything I've ever seen. Kala Rinpoche is a... Let me have one quick one on him because he's the first monk I ever met in my life uh, a long time ago in uh, Cambridge. Uh, this was long before I even knew anything about Buddhism. And I saw a sign that a Tibetan monk was going to give a talk in Memorial Hall and uh, was part of Harvard University. So, I don't know, this was about 30 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I don't know. And uh, myself and a few friends walked in, and there was almost no one there. There were just maybe 10 or 15 people in this huge, beautiful hall. And there were about six or seven Tibetan monks. One of them was Kala Rinpoche, quite old at the time. And they sat and waited, and then it became clear that no one else was coming, and they just started chanting. Um, so my response was a, a really genuine one. I just started sobbing uncontrollably. But it was of love. It was so beautiful. I didn't know what hit me. Uh, years later, I went to some talks he gave and with one of the teachers that I had spent some time with him, a remarkable person. Uh, he died some years ago. He spent uh, a lot of time in uh, alone alone and his body was alone and I'm sure also in the other sense. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.